Hey, it's Dr. Marissa Lee Naismith here, and I'm so honored to be sharing today's interview round episode with you. Listen, and you will be inspired by amazing healthcare practitioners, voice teachers, and music industry professionals who will share their stories, knowledge, and experiences within their specialized fields to help you live your best life every day. As singers, our whole body is our instrument, and our instrument echoes how we feel physically, mentally, and emotionally. So don't wait any longer. Take charge and optimize your instrument now. Remember that to sing is more than just learning about how to use the voice. It's about a voice and beyond. So without further ado, let's go to today's episode. Today's guest is Dr. Wendy LeBorn, a highly sought-after voice pathologist, speaker, author, and vocal athlete coach who works with a diversity of elite professional performers from Grammy Award-winning singers embarking on national tours to those on the bright lights of Broadway. This is part one of a two-part interview with Dr. Wendy LeBorn. And in this episode, Wendy shares her approaches and philosophies to training singers and her work as a voice pathologist, preventing and caring for vocal injuries. Wendy believes that singers are vocal athletes who not only embody the voice, but also the body, mind and spirit. Wendy speaks candidly about some of the causes of vocal pathologies across all genres and how she prepares an elite vocal athlete for durability, strength and survival in their careers. Wendy also talks about what self-care means to her and how her personal regime of self-care has helped her survive the impact of the pandemic. This is part one of a two-part interview with Wendy LeBorn, and I'm very excited to present this episode to you. So without further ado, let's go to today's show. Hi, Wendy LeBorn, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? I am good. I think like the rest of the world, we are coming out of post-COVID, you know, they say the before times and the after times. I call it BC, before COVID and then now. But, yes. you know, I'm emer- I think we're all emerging um, with new thoughts, new ideas and moving forward as a world. I think we're all trying to move forward and all of us are moving at a different pace at this point of time. <laughs> yes, hopefully two, maybe two steps forward, one step back, but yes. <laughs> I could deal with that. Now, we first met when you so graciously agreed to be interviewed as part of my PhD. So I interviewed you as, as that. That was around 2015. And then it was maybe a year after that we met in Philadelphia. And I'll never forget that because I had only just landed in Philadelphia and it was like a 36-hour trip from Australia by the time I got to Philly. And I slept in 
And I remember having lunch with you and I don't even remember. I mean, I remember being there, but it was like such a blur. But at least we've connected before and it's lovely to have that connection. And I know that uh, you've done so much amazing work for our community and I don't even know where to start with all of this. So I'm going to pick a place and go for it. You are a voice pathologist, a voice specialist, a singing teacher, an author, a presenter, a masterclass clinician. There is so much to unpack. So let's start with the voice pathologist. So how did you come to become a voice pathologist and how did you end up working with singers what came first so that you know the story of my life right all of those things we weave in I actually started my world as a performer so I oh. my undergrad my undergraduate degree is actually a bachelor of fine arts in musical theater so I performed professionally and um did that at Shenandoah Conservatory in Virginia and um, when I was in my junior or senior year at, of undergraduates, um, so my third or fourth year there at Shenandoah, I met um, a woman named Dr. Jeanette Ogg, who at the time was actually the Van Lawrence Fellowship winner from oh, the wow. Voice Foundation when she was my mentor. And, um, I came from a family where my dad was a physical therapist or in your, in, in Australia, you call him physiotherapist, but yes. my dad was a physiotherapist and, um, and I really wanted to potentially treat and evaluate, um, vocal athletes. You know, I watched my dad do sports and my, my mom was the office manager for the practice and my sister played sports and, um, so I got into it. And, I, and when I started this, because you have to remember that this was back in 1994, like it was, it was early on before this idea of voice pathologist and singing voice specialist yeah. and all came into, uh, into existence. So I actually, Bob Sadaloff, Dr. Robert Sadaloff mm -hmm. at that time had published an article on kind of a performing arts medicine degree. And so I said, I want to do that. It didn't really, I don't think exist other than in theory at the time. So I took his outline and I said, this is what I'm going to do. Um, I think I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit. Yes. <laughs> and that, <laughs> and so I, I did. And I, um, I came here to Cincinnati, um, and I continued my master's and my doctoral work here at the University of Cincinnati in communication sciences and disorders. Mm -hmm. And again, had this amazing opportunity to have this mentor in Dr. Joe Stemple, who took me under his wing. And he's like, kind of, I, I won't, I won't embarrass him, but say like the grandfather of voice therapy, oh. at least vocal function exercises, right? But um but he took me under his wing and they allowed me to grow as a clinician and I really wanted to work with singers. And so that's what I did. And Cincinnati Conservatory of Music is, is a well-known music conservatory here in the United States. And um, I continued just kind of marrying my passion and my purpose in helping people get better and then getting them back on stage. And I have been so incredibly fortunate in my career to be able to 
to do that for the last 25 years of my life. That's amazing. And I love that you said it was your passion and your purpose. That way it must feel that you've never worked a day in your life. You know, I, I truly feel that way 90% of the time. Mm -hmm. I I mean, I, I love what I do. I love what I do. I love the, I love the people that I meet and there is nothing better, um, than truly, um, helping somebody Mm -hmm. enjoy and, you know, empower them to go do what they do best. Um, and in, in my case for them, it's singing usually or acting or, being on um, the radio or preaching or things like, I mean, any place where you're using your voice to influence others, that's what I do. Yes. We're going to get to all of that influencing part of the (laughs) interview a little later because I'm fascinated with all the work you're doing there. But as a voice pathologist, what does vocal wellness mean? In terms of a singer, for a singer to be in excellent vocal shape, what are the areas that you look at? So for me, I look at efficiency. You know, are they efficient in what they're doing? Are they consistent in their performance? Um, Do they have agility, flexibility, stamina, Mm -hmm. and dynamic control to meet whatever their market demands are. So whether it is a pop rock singer, whether it is a Broadway singer, um, can they do those things efficiently and consistently uh, for whatever, you know, whether it's eight times a week or three times a month. Uh, So that to me is what I look for in vocal wellness. Um, We, I think, Um, I do a lot. I have in the past done a lot of crisis vocal management, Yes, right? So oftentimes singers don't get to somebody like me until it's at a crisis point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I really am working hard in this next chapter in my career to work on preventative wellness because I know that we're still going to get injured. Um, as singers, it's just a nature of the beast. It's kind of like a dancer is not going to go through a career without an yes. injury or a football yes, player is definitely. not going to go through, mm-hmm. but we want to do everything we can preventatively to minimize that. But th- so from a vocal wellness standpoint, that's what I look for in singers. They don't have to be perfectly smooth, straight, pearly white vocal cords, but they've got to be able to maintain the demands without a cost to their system regularly. Yeah. And what are the most common issues that you see in terms of voice pathologies in singers? Is there more common issues than not? Um, It depends. Um, I would say that my more advanced singers, so when I say advanced, people that are working professionally in the field, um, the most common injuries I see in that population tend to be what I will call vocal accidents. So for example, it would be something like they got bronchitis, they got sick, they got okay. something. Yes. They sa- they sang through it when they knew they probably shouldn't have, but they had to because mm-hmm. that was what was demanded of them. Yes. yes. And then they either get like a hemorrhage, they get, you know, acute laryngitis. So it's it's kind of like this vocal accident. In my less experienced singers. So that's going to make up your bread and butter, right? Like all of the people that um, maybe don't have as much training or even my young kids who singing choral ensembles, 
those injuries tend to be more overuse or misuse injuries. Mm -hmm. So we see things like vocal fatigue where these kids are singing in their voice lessons and then in choir and then they're doing their show and then they've had all these, you know, so it's all these overuse injuries. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes we'll see things like nodules, uh, things like that, but, uh, it's, it's very depending on kind of where people are in their careers, I think, as far as what I see. Yeah. There is one commonality though, in amongst all those people that you described is that a lot of those injuries seem to be external factors. What you've described, a lot of it is external, you know, um, it, it would like, for example, management, uh, kids being at school, I, I have that at the school that I work at. Um, my boss mm-hmm. may listen to this and I hope he is, but those kids are in their singing lessons and they're in choir practice a couple of week times a week. Then they have big performances. Then they have school assemblies. I had two students yesterday that came to me. There are year 11 and 12 students who came to me and said, we do not want to sing for a week. We literally are so vocally tired, we cannot sing, which I thought, wow, good on you for recognizing that I'm teaching them well. But but how often do you see that it's that something external is going on that's not that's either amplifying the problem or at the could actually be creating the problem for the singer yeah i mean i think it is very rare that it is a single factor that creates the problem right yes. it tends to be multifactorial yeah so it is from an injury standpoint is often about vocal dose and vocal load. So how much, how long you do it, that's going to put you depending on what you do at a higher risk. Yeah. Then it becomes about efficiency, right? Because we know that um, there've been studies that have been done where they have kids yell for the same amount of time at the same loudness at the same pitch level. And some kids will develop pathology and some kids won't. And so then you go, okay, are there predisposing factors for that person? Or is their way of producing sound less efficient than somebody else? So they get into vocal issues. Um, I don't know that we know all of the answers to those mm. questions, mm. but I, I think that it, it goes back to, you know, you have to think outside of the voice box, literally. Yes. It is it is physical health. It's what you feed your body. It is your mental, um, I don't, I don't want to say there's mental health as part of it, but yes. Um, yes. kind of your mental, your grit in all of this, um, how resilient you are when you're faced with adversity, um, I think some of it is self-regulation because let's be honest, many of our singers are not quiet people by nature, right? No. So, (laughs) and so sometimes you, we talk about these external factors, Mm -hmm. however, it's really hard for some of our singers to just keep their mouths shut in a cafeteria, you know, in, you know, all of those things. So um, I don't always think it's just the singing that causes the problems, but um, I think it's multifactorial in a lot of cases. So we do have to look at that whole person when we're looking at injury. So when you have someone that has something going on that is 
nothing to do with their that part of their their instrument, but it is maybe something psychological or emotional. How what kind of impact does that have on the instrument? How does it affect a performance? Well, it can be good or bad, right? We all we all pay to have that emotional connection mm-hmm. with another human being, right? And so um, if somebody has a vocal injury, um, I it has been my experience clinically that it will affect them psychologically from a self-doubt standpoint. Yes. yes. From the yes. From a fear of re-injury is mm-hmm. is huge, right? Yes. We I get I help them get better. Um, but it is that fear of am I going to re-injure myself? Oh my gosh, what if I lose my voice forever? So there's a fear in this. There is the psychological well-being of the individual. And then, you know, the self-doubt of, my gosh, I've been a singer my life. Why did this happen now? What did I do wrong? What could I have done? You know, it's all of those questions. So all of those things absolutely impact voice. Mm -hmm. Um, it's kind of like a pitcher who throws a a baseball, right? Or, you know, if you're afraid to throw because you don't want to hurt your shoulder, you're much more likely to hurt it than if you just go through the motion. (laughs) Um, so from a singing perspective too, when we start to, uh, hold back, when we start to fear, we know that the larynx is inherently tied to the brain, the emotional center of the brain for both good and bad. So it can play to our benefit or it can be a problem. Yes. And do you find that there are different pathologies for different genres? So talking at an elite level, so people that are in, in the midst of their careers, so if you have a Broadway singer as opposed to a classical singer, as opposed to a performing touring rock artist, are the pathologies different or they still tend to be the same? They still tend to be pretty similar. They still tend to be pretty similar. You know, I've seen acute hemorrhages and classically trained singers and I see acute hemorrhages and Broadway singers and I see acute hemorrhages and heavy metal artists and I see polyps in all of those and I see vocal fold nodules in all of those. Um, So I don't, um, to my knowledge, there was a study done a long time ago looking at genre and pathology. Um, and I would say it was done in the late eighties, maybe early Mm nineties. Um, but honestly, I don't know that we know that I've, you know, I've screened at Cincinnati conservatory, every, um, musical theater singer and classical singer that has come through that conservatory for almost 20 years. And what's interesting is that regardless of genre, at least classical or music theater, um, about 35% of normal singers will have abnormal vocal folds. Mm -hmm. And there's plenty of studies that have looked at that um, across across the board. And abnormal could mean dehydration it could mean reflux it doesn't have to mean you have nodules or polyps or things like that yes um what's been interesting to look at is in my classical singers um there's undergraduate there's master's levels and then there's the doctoral level students i've actually seen more pathology in the doctoral level students wow. than in the undergraduates but wow. let's think about it this way for a yes moment. yes 
if you think, if you think about a dancer who dances, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the longer you wear point shoes, yes, the worse your, the worse your feet tend to look, right? Yeah. So, yes. And, and, and so these pathologies that we see in the more advanced singers are not necessarily impacting their voices negatively or creating career issues, mm-hmm. but we will see slightly abnormal findings. And sometimes it's the abnormalities, I think, that make people interesting to listen to because their voices don't sound like everybody else. And yes. I do think that by the time you're 30 years old, almost, let's say that's where you are. Um, there's been a little bit more wear and tear than there has been when you're 18. Mm-hmm. And a little bit more of life and life experiences and maybe lifestyle changes, a lot of things to, yeah, I mean, a 30-year-old is very different to an 18-year-old. Yeah. And so just I, I want to ask this question quite specifically, and that is, with vocal pathologies, is there one genre that is more vulnerable to vocal pathologies than another? So we have this ongoing discussion about CCM versus classical. Do you believe that there is more vulnerability in one than the other? I don't, actually. I think Yay. that they each. Can I sorry, <laughs> give me a minute? Okay, I'm having a moment here. Thank you. (laughs) Can we stop having that discussion on Facebook now? (laughs) So here's the thing. I I think that they they are both vocal athletes. And um, I like to use this example when I present on this topic. Mm -hmm. I think of classical singers as like your Tour de France cyclists, right? Mm -hmm. Like they still crash. If anybody's ever watched the Tour de France, yes, they, they crash, right? Yes. However, and they have injuries, they break bones, whatever. I think of my CCM artist as kind of these, BMX bikers where they kind of do these crazy stunts and they jump in the air and they spin around and they land. Yes. You know, again, at the highest level of this game, regardless of whether you're an elite cyclist or whether you're a BMX biker, I don't need, you know, all of those stunts, they both come with inherent risk. You're Mm -hmm. both riding a bike. You're Mm -hmm. both amazing at what you do. Does one come with more risk than another? Probably not. Yes. You ride long enough you're all going to crash at yes. some point. Like that's Excellent. just inherent. So yeah. that's just sort of my analogy. Yeah, I love that analogy. Okay, so talking about vocal athletes, da-da, we have the book here. I have the book. Such a practical, well-written book. Thank you for allowing us in the voice community to have all this knowledge and this experience (laughs) of yours wrapped up in here and with you and Marcy. So where did you come up with, because you used the term vocal athlete earlier, where did you come up with this vocal athlete idea? And how are we like athletes? How do we align with normal athletes? Yeah, first, let me, you know, give out a shout to Marcy. Yes, <laughs> I co-author Marcy. on that book Thank as well, you. right? Yay, yes. Marcy. Um, so, you know, I, I honestly, I feel like it was, honestly, Marcy and I, I, I can't, I can't say for 100%, but in my head, this is a little bit how I remember it. 
also sat down in Philadelphia over a napkin, sort of writing out our outline of what this is going to be. And, and we talked about this idea of a vocal athlete because it is, it is body, mind, spirit. Um, it is physical from your toes to your head. And why not a vocal athlete? And I, I, I don't know which of us came up with the term or how we came up with the term. Um, but we were, you know, it just seemed very fitting. Um, how do I think singers are like athletes? Well, you know, to be on your game, you've got to have mental toughness. You've got to have mental fitness. Mm -hmm. Yes, Um, definitely. um, You need to be vocally fit, meaning that you've got to have stamina, flexibility, agility, consistency of performance. You just can't do a backflip off a balance beam once. And, and, you know, you've got to be able to do that every night if that's what you do. Yes. Um, which is also like an elite athlete, um, or any athlete, you know, you, you don't have to be the best at your game to enjoy it either. I think you need to love your sport, right? We need to love what we do. Absolutely. Um, it takes, um, respiratory training as well as um, respiratory maximization. And your larynx is like your knee. It's made up of cartilages and ligaments and muscles. And so why should we not think of ourselves as athletes? Um, I think when people, um, and there's so many parallels just in the exercise physiology literature, in what we do, and I don't know. That's just the yeah. way I think of it. Yes. So you have elite athletes in sport and they have certain regimes that they have they undertake on a daily basis to make sure that they're physically fit and they're in optimum shape and for to be able to perform at their best. What can singers do to perform at their best? And why are we, why can we be so lazy at looking after ourselves? We don't think of ourselves in those terms or not, not all of us. Right. I, you know, I, I don't, I wish I had all of the answers to those questions. So what can we do? You know, I think being the best version of you, whatever that is. And we talk about athletes. And when I start talking about this, sometimes I get a little pushback of like, I, mm-hmm. you know, that's not who I am or that's, I can't be like super, I'm not saying be super skinny. I'm not saying all of those things. I'm saying when you think about fueling your body, fuel for success. If you know you do great with protein, do protein. If you know you do great with carbs, but whatever you eat and drink, that's part of who we are, right? And Mm -hmm. so you need to think about that. Um, You need to think about practicing daily. Um, With that said, you also need to take days of rest. Mm -hmm. I'll say that again. You need to take days of rest to perform well. And I think so often as performers, we're in this go mode. I have to say, yes, I can't say no to any, you know, like you're building, it's, it's this, um, it is this mindset that has been in place for centuries, probably, honestly. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I think that giving yourself grace to take days of rest, um, I think some of the healthiest I've seen some of my performers is after COVID for the last 
year because they are so vocally rested. Yes. They sound and feel like a million bucks. Not that we're going to be able to take 12 months off. And I hope we never, ever do anything like this again. Mm -hmm. But with that said, um, you know, in a, we're talking about, um, like higher level commercial music artists, they might be singing it especially if they're like uh, on a tour, they might be singing in one city one night and then they're getting on a bus and then they've got to go to city the next night. So they're not getting good sleep or they're sleeping on a bus. They're sometimes having to stop and yeah. eat at places that they wouldn't normally fuel their body. Yes. You know, yes. it, it's, it's a very different mentality. So yes, anything you can do to prepare for that, I think it's great. Um, I'm a huge proponent of mental fitness. Um, Every single one of really high level elite athletes have sports psychologists, not because there's anything wrong, no. um, but no. it, to get your head in the game, to be at that peak mental performance when you do what you need to do. I'm a huge proponent of meditation um, or whatever your prayer, meditation, something that allows your brain to focus. Um doesn't always have to be vocal practice mm-hmm. to get you to your performance goals. Exactly, exactly. And you said, I'm going to come back to that meditation in a moment, <laughs> um, and you, but just finishing up on the the singers that you're working with, you shared with me that come July, some of your is Grammy Award winning performers are going to be hitting Mm -hmm. the road again after 12 months of not doing live performances and touring so you and you said they're in great um they're they're singing really well but how do you get them vocally fit and lifestyle fit for that tour how do you prepare them as their coach now to get them back into that shape again yeah I mean so Many of these artists, I think, have been working on and off on their voice through this whole 12 months. Mm -hmm. You know, we are now, it's kind of like preparing for a race at this point, right? You were ramping up the amount of time that they're singing, the intensity of time that they're singing, um, really working range, thinking about what this looks like for the next six to 12 months, Um, you know, all of those things. I know that the Hamilton tours are going back out. Certainly, mm-hmm. um, some of those artists have uh, have ex- have uh, had that conversation with me, and and um, you know that that's a high intensity show too. And yes, I've so you have you have to prepare now. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't wait till two weeks before because no. you know we're eight weeks out about at this point, and so. It is time we are doing vocal stamina, physical stamina, um, mental wellness, and respiratory stamina. I mean, we are hitting it. And I do it both from a very physiologic standpoint as well as an artistic standpoint. So that's a little bit of my bias is that I, I feel like you need to have a good physiologic foundation. So we do respiratory training. We do um, laryngeal muscle strength training. Um, I think of it as going to the vocal gym 
before we do the artistic part. So for me, it's like, okay, I got to do bicep curls before I can throw that ball. It's not just throwing a hundred mile an hour ball. It is, let me strengthen those muscles so that I can be efficient. And that's where we are. And that's what we're working on. So is that a lot of repetitious work the same way you would in a gym? Is it repetition? Like build sets of repetitions? Yeah. Yeah. So I actually use with my artists, respiratory trainers, inspiratory and expiratory trainers. Uh, We use vocal function exercises um, to maximize laryngeal um, glottic closure, flexibility, things like that. So if there's any artists out there that are ready, like I'm here. She's here. We're doing this vocal reconditioning and God bless Zoom. We can do it across the pond. (laughs) Actually, it would be great to have like a big class of people, like do a workshop on all this, like a series. Yay. Think about it. So so let me just say that's a little bit in the works with the the new endeavor. Okay. Okay. Well, that, that, that sounds like a great idea. Um, (laughs) And Okay, so in terms of you personally, what does self-care mean for you? Oh, my gosh. So um, this has been a a year, I mean, for all of us, but a year of change, certainly for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I've pivoted a little bit in my career from strictly doing clinical to now combining some clinic with really working with high-level vocal athletes back on on tour. So for me, that means also I take, I really take time for myself every day. I am an early riser, not a night owl. So I get up usually most days between five and five 30 in the morning. Wow. And, um, I meditate and Mm -hmm. I, I am a faithful person. So prayer is part of what I do separate from meditation. Yes. Um, And then I'm a person who likes to start my day with also exercise. Now I do these separately Mm -hmm. because, um, even though I'm the, I love to multitask, I don't find that that is best for my self-care. So truly like I'm I'm actually sitting, I'm sitting in my meditation chair here. Like this is where I sit in the morning because in my private space, but, um, um, but yeah, I do, uh, I do that and I do it every day and then exercise for me um, walking is something that I do, um, Mm -hmm. and strength training. Um, I meal plan for my family for the week. So usually my Saturdays and Sundays, I try to meal plan, um, for healthy foods, um, as well as budgeting. It works better if I meal plan and don't go out. Absolutely. But really even over the course of a week, looking at, you know, fish, um, one night or, you know, an all, an, a meatless deal, a meatless meal one night and then chicken or pork, you know, so that we have the variety in what we do. Um, and we work on that as a family too, because I think it's important. My boys are still, um, young. And so incorporating that into what hopefully they'll take out. Um, I, have really minimized my social media. I actually Mm -hmm. block time. Mm -hmm. I block time in my day Mm -hmm. where I will allow myself to look at social media. I'm hearing. Um, but I've, I've cut back on my social media consumption and posting too. Um, it got, it gets a little overwhelming, honestly. Mm It does. (laughs) So those are some things I do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not only do you, does it 
affect your mood, but also too, you can be stuck there for such a long period of time. You can get suckered in to being on social media for for hours if you if you let it. I mean, it's just one big funnel. It's like a cave, and you it's, you get to a point of no return. But you're in a position of service. What you do, you serve others. Basically, as singing teachers, we are in an area of service. You're a mum. You have two boys. 11 and 16, you're a wife, a professional, uh, a voice teacher, an author. You have so much on the go. How do you juggle all these roles? Um, sometimes better than others. <laughs> yeah. Lie. yeah. Um, and, you know, um, I, I, I'm really lucky that I have a supportive husband right? We've yes. been married for, well, we married for 25 years. Oh, beautiful. Um, so I know. It's Just so over exciting. 25. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a, that's helpful for mm-hmm. me. Um, I, I am a, you know, I think that, um, juggling it all as a mom and as a woman and as a wife, um, the older I've gotten, I think my priorities have shifted a little Mm -hmm. bit. And what was important at 20 is not as important in my forties or it's just shifted. And I don't think you can have it all at the same time. Um, I think that there is a huge cost to yourself if you try to do that. Um, and I learned that the hard way for sure. Um, uh, so as I take on some of these new roles and new responsibilities in my own business, um, you know, working on that balance, because if there's anything I've learned, I don't want to go back to that crazy, crazy rat race. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. I block time for write. I block time for writing, trying not to overcommit, you know, yes. saying, okay, yes. I need to get this project done before I commit to six others. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, and so I think that's how you work on the balance. Um, yeah. That, I mean, I don't know that, that I don't, it is, it is an ongoing learning process. Yeah. And, and it's learning to say no as well, isn't it? sometimes and that's so hard for us especially as voice teachers because we want to please everybody we want we want make everyone happy and we're all fighting for our jobs and and so we don't like to say no and as you transition just say you've you've been to the office and your clinic for the day and then you come home how do you transition then back into being a mom and a wife like there's a thing segment intending I don't know if you've heard of it where you set the intention for what you're going to do next like do you go through something where you go okay now I'm home and now this is the person I'm going to be or do you naturally just go through that transition from one role to another um I think I probably should transition better <laughs> and I'm not going to, there've been times 
where I, you know, my commute before COVID mm-hmm. um, was, you know, it was up to an hour and a half some days. And so yeah, that time I, I listened to audiobooks, or there are times when I would come home and I'd sit in my driveway and I would truly do a, like a two minute meditation reset before I walked into the house. Okay. Because yeah. it is, you know, you know, sometimes that happens. Sometimes, um, you, sometimes I have to put a sign on my, my in-house office door that says, you know, be, leave me alone. Right. Just, I need 10 minutes because I will come in here oh my and just, gosh. you know, reset. Good yeah. on you. Cause okay. that my next question was, how do you take a breath during the day? Like there's times where I'm, you just said that you say, just leave me alone for 10 minutes. And we all need that. And it's hard, isn't it, with family? I know that my husband will follow me around the house or if my kids are here or my grandkids. Like you need to be able to say that, don't you, or put that sign. <laughs> I need a sign, but I need it to be big because he would not and get that, it. <laughs> well, and it's so funny. Like this even just happened this morning in my world is, you know, I get up, I'm doing my routine. The kids are home for summer now mm-hmm. and my husband's a teacher. So he was also home. Oh, so my. I was, I'm t- today was my first day back from vacation. So I truly, I came in my office. I sat, it's like seven o'clock in the morning. Like everybody should not be bothering me. No. I'm trying to answer the emails from the last week. And my husband's literally trying to have a conversation with, he's like sorting things in here. I'm like, okay, I like, it is now time for me to be at work in my little office here. And yes. so, it, you know, sometimes it's just creating some boundaries. Oh um, my, it is hard, isn't it? <laughs> I, my husband, like I get home from work from teaching. And then I like to have some creative time where I just sit and work on, on a, a passion project, you know, and generally be some creative writing, working on this podcast. And, you know, I might only be in here 15 minutes and I get, no, you're going to make the salad or do you want me to make it? Like, it's like, leave me alone. I, I mean, literally, I would like to tell him where to place the salad but I don't, <laughs> you <know>. but <laughs> they don't like to leave us alone. It's like, what do they do without us? Bless. That's right. So, That's right. And, you know, and I enjoy my time, you know, and, and wind down time. Like I, when I, I literally block time on my schedule, like mm. tonight, Yes, it's, it's morning, your time, it's nighttime yes. for me, yes. but I truly, I block, Yeah, I block time in my schedule and I go, okay, at, 845, I'm doing 15 minutes of core work because I'm trying trying to get a little core work in the morning, core work at night. And then I have reading time for myself. And um, reading for me um, can't be so much on my phone or my iPad. Um, I I like actually like an an actual book to read, right? Oh, really? You know? (laughs) Um, I'm an audio I do like when I walk, I listen to audiobooks. Or if I read on my phone, these are like blue light glasses because I just find that it keeps me awake. Over this last year, I I've always been a person that sleeps from 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. Like I'm just a good sleeper. Like, and this year has rocked that. And I find myself waking up at two and three o'clock in the morning and I just go, okay, we need to reset what this is. Um, yes. so I've made some changes 
coming into later in my evening um, to be able to, to do that. Yes. Do you find now that you need that time to prepare to go to sleep almost like some, some way of um, like, you know, getting off social media or getting off your devices time that you start to wind down and you don't look at emails and things like that. Is that the kind of thing that you're doing? Yeah, I've made a really conscious decision that, you know, when I'm done um, at, you know, six o'clock that I am not looking at any more emails. I don't check social media. Mm-hmm. I make a very conscious decision first thing yes. in the morning um, that I don't, you know, most of my phone is my alarm clock, right? Like yes. Everybody like else. All of us. But yeah. That, that I, that I do I make a really conscious effort in that first hour of getting up mm-hmm. that I am not looking, I'm not looking at the news. I'm not yes. looking at my email. I'm yes. not looking at social media, yes. but every day it's a struggle. I'm not going to lie. Is. Right. Like it I, is. I, I have to make this decision to do it. Um, and that the first emails that I send in the morning are emails that I have intention to send. Like I wanted to reach out to somebody versus being at everyone else's beck and call and start my day with yes. answering everybody else's yes. emails because then I yes. find that I yes. never get to the ones that I need to do. Yeah. And that's the thing, isn't it? Where people don't realize that when they check their emails, they're allowing other people to take control of the direction of their morning. Whereas, and you don't get the things done that you need to get done. And if someone sends you an email in the middle of the night, well, clearly they're disorganized. And why why do you have to pick up the pieces for them? That's how I look at it. Might be a bit harsh, but you know what I'm saying. Unless it's an international colleague, but if if it's someone else, you think, well, why didn't you get that done in the day? And why didn't you let me know about this about 48 hours ago, rather than leaving it to the last minute? You're in crisis, and you want me to help you? No. Nah. <laughs> yeah, and or if if for for myself also, if I am one of the if I have one of those crazy sleepless nights and I'm like, all right, I'm going to be productive. I'm going to answer some emails. I always set my email send time to at least seven or 8 AM. So people don't see that I'm answering them at three o'clock. Oh, you're one of those people. (laughs) Oh, you're busted. (laughs) If I, if I have, if I have to get up and do, if I'm like, if I totally can't sleep, because if I, you know, if I'm, if I'm in one of those you know, cycles of like, okay, I'm waking up at three and I've got a million things. I will literally do some meditation in the night to try to fall back asleep. If I still can't after 30 minutes, I'll get up and go to a different place just because I don't want yeah. to, uh, you know, make that cycle happen. But if I do say, okay, I'm going to spend 30 minutes answering emails. I do, I do time delay my send instead of not being productive and thinking about the emails, I'll at least respond, but just delay the send I didn't to know. a normal hour. Okay. I didn't know you could do that. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, which is part one of my interview with Dr. Wendy LeBorn. And we look forward to sharing part two with you, which is coming up next. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this episode of A Voice and Beyond. 
Now is an important time for all of us to spread positivity and empowerment in our Singing Voice community. It's time for you to invest in your own self-care, personal growth and education. Use every day as an opportunity to learn and to grow so you can show up for your students feeling energized, empowered and ready to deliver your best. Be the best role model and mentor you can possibly be and watch your students thrive as you do. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please make sure to share it with a friend or a colleague who you think will be inspired by this. Copy and paste the link and share it with the people you think will enjoy listening to this show. Please share it on social media and use the hashtag A Voice and Beyond. If you would like to help me, please rate and review this podcast and cheer me on by clicking the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts right now. I would love to know what it is you enjoyed the most about this episode and what was the biggest takeaway for you. I promise you there are many episodes to follow as I'm committed to bringing you more inspiration and conversations just like this one. I'd like to finish up with my final thoughts. Remember that to sing is more than just learning how to use a voice. As singers, our whole body is the instrument and our bodies echo what we feel physically, mentally and emotionally. So singing is not just about the voice. It's about a voice and beyond. Please take care of yourself and I look forward to your company next time.